I'm going to start in Isaiah 9, verse 8. should be on page 524 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Start in Isaiah 9 and 8. I'll read to Isaiah 10 and 4. The Lord sends a message against Jacob, and it falls on Israel. And all the people know it. That is Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. Asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord raises up superior adversaries against them from resin and provokes their enemies, the Arameans from the east and the Philistines from the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaws. In spite of this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of armies. So the Lord cuts off the head and the tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush in a single day. The head is the elder and the esteemed man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray. And those who are guided by them are confused. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, nor does he have compassion on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer. And every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the thickets of the forest aflame. And they roll upward in a column of smoke. By the wrath of the Lord of armies, the land is burned. And the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares his brother. They devour what is on the right hand, but are still hungry. And they eat what is on the left hand, but they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, Ephraim, Manasseh, and together they are against Judah. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. His hand is still outstretched. Woe to those who enact unjust statutes and to those who constantly record harmful decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor among my people of their rights. So that the widow may be their spoil and they may plunder the orphans. Now what will you do in the day of punishment? And in the day of devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or to fall among the killed. But in spite of all of this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. The title of the message tonight is... His anger is not turned away. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for all you've given and done. We are thankful, Lord, for the peace that does flood over our soul, that comes down from you. Much in this world could steal our peace. Much in this world could make us anxious and fearful. The peace we have in Christ calms our souls and steals our hearts and how we are thankful for you today in that. We're thankful, Lord, for the opportunity we have tonight to gather, to study your word, Lord. The message we're looking at tonight is hard. Your message to Israel in this passage is hard. The message for them is really the message for us. Our, Our world is not really much different than theirs. We need this message as much as they did. So, Father, help us to take it and apply it to our lives. Father, where we need convicting from this message, let us be convicted. Where we need strengthening from this message, let us be strengthened. Lord, whatever else you do in this message, use it. Use it to burden our hearts for the lostness of the world around us. Any message about your judgment, any message about your anger, it really ought to be something we take very seriously. Our world, our our nation, 
so many in our community, Lord. Their lives testify that they they are under the anger of Almighty God. The wrath of Almighty God will one day fall upon them. And Lord, like the people in Isaiah's day, they're confused. They're being led astray. But we're not. We're more like Isaiah. We have the word of the Lord. We know the message you've given. We know the truth. This isn't a time for laxness. This isn't a time for lukewarmness. This isn't a time to soothe our consciences while we let the world around us die and go to hell. Stir us, burden us, send us out and use us to win our community for Christ. We ask in His name, for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now the repetition of in spite of all this, His anger does not turn away and His hand is still outstretched. In verse chapter 9, verse 12, then again in verse 17, verse 21, and then in chapter 10 and verse 4, shows this to be the key thought of the passage. The meaning of this repeated statement is even though they had faced earthly consequences for their sin, they had not received the full measure of God's judgment, and God's hand was still poised and primed to strike. That's what he's saying. And at the end of it, you notice verse 12, enemies are coming but in, and they're going to do something, but in spite of this, his anger hasn't turned away. Verse 17, there's these problems that are coming because of their sin, but in spite of this, the anger is not turned away. Verse 21, they're devouring one another, but in spite of this, the anger is not turned away. Chapter 10, nothing remains except just to go among the captives or fall down dead. But in spite of this, his anger does not turn away. The point of this is clear. Earthly consequences for sin, no matter how severe, do not turn God's anger away from sin. Earthly consequences for sin, no matter how severe, do not turn God's anger away from sin. This statement is repeated four times. Each time it's at the end of a section detailing a particular sin of Israel. Each sin has its own consequence. In many ways, this is like an Old Testament version of the law of sowing and reaping from Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Now every person in the world reaps a harvest of consequences in this life and in the life to come for the actions they've taken in their lives. This is true across the board. All people reap a harvest. The difference is in the type of consequences that will be reaped. Some will reap death and destruction, while others reap life and blessings. So what makes the difference? Why do some reap death and destruction and others reap life and blessings? Well, what is reaped depends on what is sown. Those who sow to the flesh, who live in sin and rebellion against God, will reap death and destruction because of their sin. There will be negative consequences in this life, and there will be negative consequences in the life to come. This is a rule without exception. That's why it starts off with, do not be deceived. No one should be deceived into thinking they are the exception to this rule. No one should be deceived to think anyone they know or love is going to be the exception to this rule. There are no exceptions to this rule. This is the way God has ordered His world to work. This is the way God works and brings about things in His world. The point God is making in Isaiah is earthly consequences no matter how severe, are not the fullness of God's judgment against sin. 
earthly consequences, no matter how severe, do not turn God's anger away from sin. Earthly consequences for sin, no matter how severe, do not turn God's anger away from sin. That's why it says repeatedly, in spite of this, his anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. It's like God saying, but wait, there's more. You've done these things. Here are the earthly consequences for that. But wait, there's more. Now, something to notice about these sins, which we'll talk about in just a second, is they are both corporate and individual. Right? They're, they're corporate because the letter, the message is addressed to the nation. It falls on Jacob. It falls on Israel, Ephraim and Samaria. Those, those are the nations. And on Judah, those are the nations as a whole, the nation of Israel. So God's warning, it comes to them as a group, as a people. But the nation is not some nebulous entity that has done wrong. The nation is individual people. The sins of the nation are the sins of the individuals. Right. So what God is saying here for the nation has done, the nation has done this because the people have done this. So we need to, as we look at this, think about it both corporately, think about it individually. There are four specific sins mentioned in this passage. And as I studied it, there's not only the four sins mentioned, but it kind of gives us the attitude going along with these sins, associated with the sins. And so here are the four sins. One, arrogance. The attitude. We don't need God. Arrogance is the very first sin God calls them on. And the attitude with that is we don't need God. Right. So verse eight, God is sending a message. He is telling them there is a judgment to come. It will fall upon the land and it will be severe. Verse nine, the people know it. They they know there is a message of judgment. They know it's going to happen. They know what God has said he is going to do. But they respond by asserting in pride and arrogance of heart. Now, in many ways, their response is it's astounding how arrogant they are. God has promised a judgment, right? We saw in previous chapters that's going to, to leave them, the nation, the cities ruined. They're roaming the earth in distress and darkness and in anguish, angry at God. This is what's coming for them if they don't turn. They know that, but in the arrogance of their heart, they say this. Well, the bricks are torn down. We'll rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we'll replace them with cedar. And what they're saying is, if God causes the devastation he's promised, they'll just rebuild. In many ways, you could honestly say what they're saying is, we'll build back better. I mean, that's what they're talking about. Smooth, they're going to take down the, the bricks and repair them with smooth stones. Sycamore trees are torn down. They're going to be replaced with cedars. They're saying, we don't need God. God can bring the judgment. God can do all of these things. He's saying, and we'll build back better by ourselves. We don't need God. So God's, they just see no need for God in their life at all. This sort of arrogance is not limited to the people of Isaiah's day. It has always been the way one of the ways people rebel against God and always will be. Let me show you from a psalm characteristics of those who are arrogant and feel they don't need God. Psalm 10 verses 3 and 4. For the wicked boasts of his soul's desire and the greedy person curses and shows disrespect to the Lord. The wicked in his haughtiness does not seek him. There is no God in all his schemes or thoughts in some translation. So all of this is based upon their pride, right? The pride, the haughtiness and the pride at the end it is really the motivation for it all. It's what's caused them to be wicked. And what they're doing is first they're they're boasting of the desires of their souls. The wicked soul has wicked Desires. 
And they brag about the wicked desires they have. They brag about the ways they fulfill their wicked desires. They they bless the greedy. And we'll talk something about the greed in just a bit. So we're going to pass over it here. So they boast in their soul's desires, their wicked desires. And they show, they curse and show disrespect to the Lord. Now the word translated as curse is a strong word. In some translations it's translated as renounce. Some translations it's translated as despised. But overall, curse and show disrespect pictures both an active disdain for God and a rejection of God and his authority over their lives. These are people who would say things like, I can't imagine God caring about me doing this and this being whatever the wicked desire of their soul may be. Something God has clearly forbidden us from doing. They would say something like, well, I think just God wants me to be happy. And if a God doesn't want me to be happy, he's really not worth worshiping and and serving anyway. They use these things to justify the wicked desires of their soul. How they desire it, how they fulfill it, how they seek it. And and again, the root of it all is their pride. The wicked in his haughtiness does not seek the Lord. A proud heart produces a stiff knee that will not bend to anyone, not even God. Now, this kind of pride is shown in in a multitude of ways. It's shown by those who won't acknowledge they have sinned against God and they're in need of a savior. And they'll pride, they'll say things like, I'm really not that bad of a person. I'm basically a good person. The sort of haughtiness or pride is shown by those who maybe they feel they're too intelligent to believe the Bible. And in their pride, they'll say things like, well, I have a scientific mind and I couldn't possibly accept the claims of the Bible. It's by though it's shown by those who find the creation account unbelievable. The fall of humanity unacceptable. The incarnation of Jesus unimaginable. The cross for sin, unreasonable, and the resurrection, untenable. And all of this flows out of their pride. God is not in their thoughts. And what's interesting is what this picture is, they they just kind of live as if there is no God. God is no big deal. They they don't consider God before they make any moral choices. They don't consider what's right or wrong according to God's will or God's word. In some cases, some cases the haughty are wicked and boast of their evil soul's desires. But in some case, the pride, the arrogant people that we see in Isaiah and here, they just don't take God into consideration. They're going to do what they want to do. What does God's word say? I don't know. And really, I don't care. It has no bearing on my life what your God may say. Right? They just don't care. They just don't consider God in any of their decisions or their plans. And again, all of this is motivated by pride. Their pride has made them think they don't need to worry about God's will or God's want in anything. Their pride is the overarching sin throughout Psalm 10, 3 and 4. Pride is the root sin behind all of the other sins mentioned. Pride has been called the mother of all sins because it's the sin that spawns all other sins. So God's word for the proud people in Isaiah's day is found in verse 11. Therefore, the Lord raises up superior adversaries against them from resin and provokes their enemies. Oh, oh, okay, so you're going to ignore my warnings and you'll build back better? Then I will raise up even more powerful enemies, is what God's saying. You're you're going to do it on your own. You don't need me. You can fix it without me. Well, watch as I raise up bigger enemies and more enemies to such an extent that they are going to devour Israel with gaping jaws. Now, I mean, that just pictures complete destruction. Kill them. Level the buildings. I mean, it is going to to devastate them. 
So the judgment God is going to send against these proud people is going to be harsh and significant. Yet, in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. And his hand is still stretched out. So even though he's going to raise super enemies, and he's going to provoke all their enemies... And he's going to bring them from the east and the west all around them until Israel is devoured. But wait, there's more. And this is because earthly consequences for sin, no matter how severe, do not turn God's anger away from sin. So the first is arrogance. We don't need God. Secondly, it's irreverence. We don't fear God. Despite the consequences they have faced already, despite the threat of the consequences that are still to come, they don't turn back. They don't seek the Lord. And this is because they are not afraid of God and what He can do to them, what He has done to them, or what He has promised to do to them. Now, part of the reason they have not turned back to God is because The leaders of the people were corrupt. So the Lord is going to cut off the head and the tail, the palm branch and the bulrush in a day. The head is the elder, the esteemed man. The prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. Political and religious leaders were leading people astray by teaching things contrary to what God had said. Now, what they're teaching is, again, contrary. And it's left the people confused, right? For the people who... For those who guide this people, verse 16, are leading them astray. Those who are guided by them are confused. Now, we must not think that confused pictures them as being victims. They're not victims. They're fully complicit in their rejection of God. The people have been presented with a thus saith the Lord. They have received it from the mouth of a prophet. They have received it from the Word of God they have been taught since children. They know what God's Word said and the curses that are under the law if you don't keep it. And so they have God's Word which they've always been taught. They have prophets like Isaiah rising up to say, thus says the Lord. And then on the other side, they have political leaders. And they have religious leaders who are corrupt. And they're saying... Come on, you you don't really think God's going to do that, do you? I mean, this is is Jerusalem. There's no way Jerusalem's going to be captured and and conquered. We're the apple of God's eye. It says so in the Psalms. God would never cause His temple to be raised like, like this message. No, no. No, God would never do this. God is okay with what we're doing, right? What you that yeah the law said that but it, the world was different then we were smarter than that now we we know we don't have to live like that any longer. In other words, they were saying peace, peace when God was saying there was no peace. They were comforting the people in their sin and in their rebellion, and so the people are presented with two messages. One they don't like, and it says repent of the things you like doing that you shouldn't be doing, and go back to do the things you don't want to do, but you should be doing. Then they have another message saying, you're fine just the way you are. Everything you do is perfectly fine. You're you're going to be okay. Well, which one are they going to choose? Clearly, what they have done is they have chosen the false message. They prefer the comfortable message. They prefer the easy message. They prefer the message of of peace to the message of repentance. So they are fully complicit in what they're doing. This is similar to something Jesus would later warn us against. Jesus said the one who believes in him is not judged, condemned. The one who does not believe has been judged already. And here's the reason. He has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And here's why they haven't believed. Light has come in the world and people love darkness rather than light. Loving darkness rather than light is loving something God's Word calls darkness more 
than loving God or more than loving Jesus or more than loving the salvation Jesus provides. Things God's word calls darkness are just sin, self-righteousness, self-centeredness, all of these sort of things. God's word says that's that's the path of darkness. And the love of darkness more than light is seen in choosing darkness over coming into the light of God or coming into the light of Jesus, coming in the light of salvation. And again, it, it's it's competing messages. On the one hand, you have the message of the gospel. Jesus died for sin. Jesus rose again. You must repent and believe. Implicit in the message of Jesus dying for sin is that if we live for Jesus, we come to him, we have to live in holiness. We can't live in darkness while following the one who is the light at the same time. And yet there's always a competing message saying, well, that's not really sin anymore. That you, you just don't understand the Greek, Joe. The Greek word, it, it never meant what you've always understood to me. The church has been wrong for 2,000 years about that. Trust me, I went to seminary. I, I know. I know far more than anybody who's ever come before me. No, no, you're, you're fine the way you are. No, no, God would never want you not to be happy. No, no, God would never want you not to pursue what make, what pleases you most. And so the people are are met with competing messages. One coming straight out of God's Word. One coming from the imagination of another person. And the people have a choice. And they show what they love by what they choose. Those who choose to continue in their sin, choose to continue rejection against Jesus, they have chosen. They love darkness more than light. If they love light, they would go to Jesus. And they would embrace the cross And they would be forgiven and they would renounce their sin and they would strive to live a holy life. But those who don't even try that, who don't even attempt to live for Jesus, they're choosing darkness. The message hasn't changed. They've chosen a false message. They've chosen darkness over life. And the reason, one of the main reasons people choose darkness over light, one of the reasons they love darkness more than light is because they do not Fear God. Make no mistake. The person who chooses darkness over light has said in their heart they do not fear God. They do not fear the wrath to come. They do not think God can do anything to them. They are no different than the people we see here in Isaiah's day. Psalm 36 tells us wrongdoing speaks to the ungodly within his heart. Why do they follow it? Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. Sin speaks to their hearts and woos them because they do not fear God. And yet there are consequences for this. There will be social upheaval. God is going to cut the head and the tail, palm branch and the bulrush in a single day. So the the religious and political leaders are going to be cut down. And there's going, to be, there's going to be consequences on those who follow them. The Lord does not rejoice over their young men. Nor does He have compassion on their orphans or their widows. Basically, the picture is all of society will suffer. As the people choose darkness over light, all of society will suffer. And God is not going to spare Anyone, everyone is going to suffer from it. The reason is because they're all godless. They're all evildoers and they speak foolishness. So as the people live in irreverence without a fear of God, all of society. And I think part of what we can see from this is, again, we take it as an individual level. I live in irreverence without fear of God. It's going to influence my daughters. It's going to influence my family and those that I'm a part of. And as I influence them by my irreverence and my lack of fear of God, they're going to be irreverent. They're going to lack the fear of God. And God is not going to spare them because it was my influence that led them there. That's what he's saying. It's going to be a ripple effect. It's going to affect, I'm going to face it. They're going to face it. They're all going to face it. 
It's what affects the individual, the people they influence, and society as a whole. And yet, in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. So, all of society suffers for the irreverence and the lack of fear of God. And yet it's not over. Because earthly consequences for sin, no matter how severe, do not turn God's anger away from sin. Third sin we see, we see arrogance, we don't need God. Irreverence, we don't fear God. Rebellion, we won't obey God. Verse 18, for wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes the briars and the thorns. It also sets the thickets in the forest of flame. And they roll upward in a column of smoke. When left unchecked, sin becomes like a cancer. It spreads rapidly, it grows deeper, and it destroys completely. This is what we see in, in this passage, verses 18 through 21. The sin spreads like wildfire through dried up bushes and through thickets in the forest. Sin spreads, sin consumes, sin destroys. Sin not only consumes them and destroys them, but it, it causes them to destroy one another. Right? Look at verse 20. They devour what's on the right hand. This is them. Right? Sin has consumed them. And now they're beginning to turn on. It's destroying themselves. They devour what's on the right hand, but they're still hungry. They eat what's on the left and they're not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. So this picture is what sin does to them. is make them so hungry, they cut off their arm, they eat it, but they're still hungry. So they cut off the other arm and they eat it and they're still hungry. So what do they do when they've done that? Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together, they're against Judah. Sin it begins to destroy to such an extent that it destroys us from the inside out, but not content to stop there. It begins to lead us to destroy others, and it causes the nation or the, the, the culture to destroy itself from within. Right At this point, the picture is not even that the enemy... Right, God's not even going to have to send the Arameans or the Philistines or the people from Rezin. They're going to destroy themselves because that's what a sinful culture does. Hold your finger here, but turn to Romans 8, 1. I'm sorry, Romans 1, verse 18. Page 857. We're just going to be here quickly because we don't have time to go deep into it. I just want to point out a couple of things. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God and did not honor Him as God, or give him thanks, but became futile in their thinking, their reasonings, their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for a form of corruptible mankind, birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, this is a all, verse 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 32, shows us what happens when a culture rebels against God and determines they will not obey God. We don't have time to get into it into detail. Take time and, and read it. Read it slowly and read it carefully. But notice in verse 18 that it's, this is about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against the ungodly culture. Right. So while this, this is talking about earthly consequences, but it's not just earthly consequences as a matter of this just happened to happen. This is God causing these things to happen in the culture why would God cause these things to happen in the culture? Why would He pour out His wrath against an entire culture? Well, it's because the culture has become ungodly. It has become unrighteous. They suppress the truth. 
in unrighteousness. In other words, they, they know what they're saying is wrong, but they pretend that what they're saying is true. They have rejected the things they can know about God. They look at creation, and rather than see there must be an amazing God who has created all things, they begin to come up with these other ideas about how the world has come to be. Even though they, they knew God or they knew about God, they didn't worship God. They didn't honor God. They didn't give Him thanks. But instead, they became futile in their thinking. And what this means is they began to come up with these all ideas about what God was really like that were contrary to what God had said He was like in His Word. That's what it means in verse 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, birds, four-footed animals. In other words, they said... We, should, we shouldn't really live for a, a God that's out there somewhere. We should live for, for people. So it, it starts off, God pours out this wrath against the culture because the revelation about God has been rejected. God pours out His wrath on a culture because revelation about God has been replaced by mankind or man-made ideas about God. God then, verse 24 26, 28 gives them up to their own lusts, their own counsels, their own plans, their own ideas to do whatever their depraved mind wants to do. One of the things that's interesting about this, we know God's word teaches humans are, are sinful in, in core of our being. But very few people are as sinful as they could be. What this pictures is not that God makes them worse than they are. God removes His restraining influence from their lives and from the culture and lets them do all the depraved and wicked things they want to do. That, that's the picture of what He does. And He just lets them run wild. And when He does, the culture rejoices. They respond to the abounding iniquity resulting from God turning them over. And they rejoice in it. They know that those who practice such things are worthy of death, but they not only do them, they approve of those who practice them. In verse 32 it says, This results in the breakdown of society like what we see in Isaiah 9. Go ahead and turn back there. 18 through 21. Right? Romans 1, the culture being turned over. Isaiah 9, 18 through 21, about the culture eating itself up. They're basically the same thing. So God's going to turn them over. And He's going to let them do what they want. And they're going to devour. The sin is going to devour them. Sin is going to lead them to devour and destroy one another. And as bad as that sounds, and as bad as it is, in spite of all this, His anger does not turn away. And His hand is still stretched out. And this is because earthly consequences, no matter how severe... Do not turn God's anger away from sin. And then finally, arrogance, we don't need God. Irreverence, we don't fear God. Rebellion, we won't obey God. Greed, we don't treasure God. In Isaiah 10, verses 1 through 1 and 2, we see that these corrupt leaders make unjust laws. Woe to those who enact unjust statutes, to those who... Constantly record harmful decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice. Rob the poor among my people of their rights so that the widow may be their spoil and they may plunder the orphans. So they make these laws that are unjust and the result of these laws is that the needy are deprived of justice, the poor are robbed of their rights, the widows become their spoil and orphans are plundered. Now the result of these unjust laws seems to be the point of the unjust laws. right? What I mean is these laws weren't just poorly created and the tragic yet unintended consequence was that the poor, was that the needy were deprived of justice, the poor were robbed of their rights, the widows were made spoil, and the orphans became plundered. No, that's not what happened. It wasn't the unintended consequence. It was the intended consequence. They intentionally made harmful decisions with the goal of depriving the needy of justice, the goal of robbing the poor of their rights, the goal of plundering or of making the widows their spoil and plundering the orphans. The sin 
behind these unjust laws is just very simply greed. The needy, the poor, the widows, and the orphans were some of the most helpless people with the least rights and abilities to fight injustice in their society. The rich and the powerful were exploiting their lack of influence, their lack of power for their own gain. The rich and powerful made laws that kept them rich and powerful. These same laws ensured the poor and the powerless kept them poor and powerless. Now, compare, contrast these leaders in Israel with the suffering saints of Hebrews. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing you have for yourselves a better and a lasting possession. The suffering saints in Hebrews joyfully accepted the seizure of their property because they knew what they had in Jesus was greater than any earthly thing they might lose. The lawmakers in Israel treasured treasure. And the suffering saints in Hebrews treasured God. And this matters immensely because treasuring treasure and not treasuring God is greed. And greed, according to God's word, is a terrible sin. Therefore, treat the parts of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Because of these things, including greed, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. The word translated as greed there, it basically means a consuming desire for more. According to commentator William Barclay, the Greeks defined it as a desire that cannot be satisfied. He said you might as easily satisfy it as you can fill a bowl with a hole in it. It is an all-consuming desire for more. Now Paul said, not me, Paul said this consuming desire for more is idolatry. And it's idolatry because it focuses on fulfilling our own desires and not on pleasing God. It's idolatry because it makes what we're greedy for, what we desire, the primary object of our devotion and not God. When we treasure treasure, acquiring it becomes the focus of our devotion. And this is greed. And it shows we do not treasure God. And also... The wrath of God comes upon those who live greedy lives. This connects us back to Isaiah 10. We get here and the question is asked, what will you do on the day of punishment? And in the devastation which will come from afar, to whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your wealth? Okay, so you have been greedy, treasured treasure and not God, and so you have deprived these people in order to enrich yourself. How's that going to help you when the day of judgment comes? Where are you going to go when punishment arrives? What is going to be your refuge? Who's going to end up with your wealth? Their wealth is going to be taken as the image. To such an extent, nothing remains. But to crouch among the captives... Or fall among those who will be killed. Those are powerful word pictures. If you've read through, say, the book of Jeremiah. I just finished Jeremiah today. When Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day, all of the rich and powerful are taken away and the only people left in the land are the poor and the helpless. And they're given jobs to work. And the picture here is, when this day of judgment comes, nothing remains of your wealth. And you're just going to be crouching with the poor. These people you have deprived of justice. These people you have oppressed and taken away their rights. You're going to become one of them. Or you're just going to fall down and be killed. You're going to die as well. Your money, in other words, will not save you on the day of judgment. They will lose everything 
in that moment. But in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. And that's because earthly consequences for sin, no matter how severe, do not turn God's anger away from sin. And since that's the case, since earthly consequences for sin, no matter how severe, do not turn God's anger away from sin, the question in verse 3 should burn in our hearts. What will we, what will people do on the day of punishment? To whom will we or will anyone flee for help? Now, they're not given an answer. But for us, we know the answer comes in the person of Jesus. Isaiah will later say, it was our sickness that he himself bore, our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God and humiliated, but he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment of our well-being was laid upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall upon him. So much in the chapter we'd love to study. We don't have time. Take time and read this as well. Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. Read it slowly, read it deeply, think about what Jesus has done for us. I want us to notice that Jesus died for our sin. Jesus was afflicted, struck down, humiliated, pierced, crushed, and wounded. It was all done for sin, but not His sin, our sin. This was done because of your sin. This was done because of my sin. He was afflicted, struck down, and humiliated in our place. He was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. He was punished for our well-being. He was wounded for our healing. Our wrongdoing fell upon Him. Everything Jesus suffered, He suffered for me and He suffered because of me. Everything Jesus suffered, He suffered for you and He suffered because of you. The result of Jesus' suffering is that He has taken our griefs. He has taken our sorrows. His suffering brings us well-being. His wounding brings our healing. His taking our iniquity enables us to turn back the right way. All of this frees us from the wrath to come. And the wrath to come is not something we should underestimate or forget. Because while earthly consequences for sin can be severe, they are nothing compared to the wrath to come. And here's what I... We have to understand. In Jesus, we have a refuge from the wrath to come, but only in Jesus. In Jesus is our only help. Only Jesus can save us. You and I, we need Jesus. And here's here's what I was trying to get. I want you to understand. You and I, we may well have acted in these ways. And we may well have suffered terribly for our sin. We may well have had terrible earthly consequences because of sinful, rebellious actions we've taken. But make no mistake, our earthly consequences did not pay the penalty our sin earned in eternity. Our earthly consequences, no matter how severe, do not turn God's anger away from our sin. You and I did not endure the wrath of God on earth and so pay the penalty for our sin. The only penalty or the only person who did that was Jesus. So I can't, you and I, we can't say, yes, I have done that and I have had a terrible time with it, but I've paid my debt and now I'm good. We're not. We have not paid our debt and no matter what we endure in this life, we never pay our debt for our debt is not paid in this life. But it's not just us. We may have loved ones. And our loved ones desperately need Jesus. And and maybe they've acted in these sort of ways and they've suffered terribly because of their sin. 
The temptation for us will be to say then they've taken care of it. They have endured it. They have gone through it and so they're okay because they have suffered here. But their suffering here does not take away the wrath and anger of God against their sin. Only Jesus takes away the wrath and the anger of God. Suffering in this life is real. And suffering because of sinful actions we've taken is real. But those, that suffering is not punitive in that it takes away our sin. Only Christ can take away our sin. And we cannot look at our loved ones who have gone through terrible things because of their decisions and say, well, they have endured it. They have paid their debt. No, no, they have not. Only Jesus pays the debt. And then, since this was corporate message, our nation needs Jesus. And I know we know this, but I always want to remind us, because we're always in an election season in one way or another. A new president is not going to fix our nation. New congressmen are not going to fix our nation. New senators are not going to fix our nation. Our nation needs Jesus. That is the only hope, the only cure. And if we're going to labor in any way to make our nation a better place, we must nation or we must labor for the sake of the gospel. For only Jesus can heal the wounds and the hurts and fix the problems of our nation. You and I, we need Jesus. Our loved ones, they need Jesus. And our nation, it needs Jesus. Let's be sure we know that. Let's be sure we believe that. And let's live like that's true. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We praise you, Lord, for loving us and saving us. We thank you, Lord, for the word that guides us along the best path for our lives. Lord, the message is hard. It really is. But we're thankful. We're thankful that we have your word that can tell us that earthly consequences do not pay the penalty for our sins. Because it's easy to believe that about ourselves. It's easy to think we've suffered. We've endured. We've earned it. But we haven't. It's easy to think that about those we love. They've suffered, they've endured, they've earned it, but they haven't. It's easy to think another politician will Fix the problems of our nation. That's what they're all selling us right now. That's what they're going to be selling us for the next couple of years. But your word declares it's just not true. Let us be a gospel people. Let us be a Jesus people. Above all else. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.